0: Today's scripture reading is in Genesis 15, 1 through 8. If you have a Bible, we'd encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Please feel free to grab one uh, off the tables in the vestibule on your way out. Again, our reading is Genesis 15, 1 through 8. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, How am I to know I shall possess it? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Paul. Well, again, good to be with you all this morning uh, as we uh, continue on in our our time of worship together. I just want to pray uh, as we jump into God's Word, so let's take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, you are holy, you are far beyond us in terms of what we can comprehend, and yet, Lord, you are simultaneously near us and closer than we can ever imagine. And so, Lord, I ask in this time that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your word, that we would be formed and shaped by it. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. So how, how am I to know? That's the, that's the question that, that Abram asked in this text, very honestly, very in a raw way. And, and in many ways, this question, when really what Abram's asking is, how do I know I can trust you? Wh- which is a question, I mean, you just kind of take God out of the picture for a second, which sounds strange to say on a Sunday morning, but, but we ask that question of virtually every person we interact with. How do I know I can trust you? And we also know, I mean, we're not, we're not so naive to think and understand that, that people ask that very question of us. How, how do they know they can trust us? And we, we all wrestle with this question, whether it's of God or with other people that we are in relationship with, we ask this question of others and others ask it of us. And in my own life, the person who has undoubtedly asked this question, how do I know I can trust you? The person who's asked that question more than anyone else is my little brother, Aaron. Who, like, If you've been here on church on Sunday morning, I've shared numerous stories of how I've tormented my brother, and he by far has asked this question, how do I know I can trust you? And, and the case in point, the great example of how that this kind of has really been lived out is when Aaron was about 9, I was 11, I convinced Aaron to let me light his arm on fire. And, and now, if, if you were with us last week, Nathan shared a story, like a pyromaniac story of his own from childhood. And I was like, well, I've got, to, I've got to add my own to this. But when Aaron was nine, I convinced him to let me empty an entire can of hairspray on his arm and then light it on fire. And I told him, I was like, Aaron, don't worry. It's going to be fine. There's so much hairspray that the fire will burn off. And then once the hairspray has gone, you will be unscathed, you know, because science. And so Aaron is like, yeah, let's, let's do this. This is a wonderful idea. And so we get the hairspray out. I don't know where my parents are this time. And I cover his arm in hairspray. And I, now... Safety is very important to me, and so I had a bowl of water right next to us, you know, in case things went awry, Um, and Aaron, I light his arm on fire, and I kid you not, for like a solid three seconds, he's like, whoa! Whoa! And then he went, Wah! and what the best part is that he went and he hit the bowl of water, knocked it over, and he's waving his arm around. We finally got it out, and so he still can't grow uh, our, a hair on his forearm right now. But, and so to this day, Aaron still has a hard time being around hairspray, water, and his brother. And, and the tough thing, is, I mean, the, tr- the truth is that, like, I mean, Aaron does, like, because of that, I mean... I can't believe he trusts me, or any human for that matter, because of the ways I've treated him. And, and obviously that's a silly story, it's ridiculous and it's an extreme example, but, but in a world filled with terrible big brothers, in a world filled with fake news, identity theft, a world filled with religious and political leaders and all their scandals, in a world filled with, with questions, I mean, like, do we eat carbs, do we not eat carbs? I don't know, people. It's hard to trust anyone in our world today and, and, and the, the truth is that many of us are probably asking that question of how can I know, how can I know that I can trust you? Some of you are asking this question of me even this morning. You're asking the question because you've been, you've been hurt by the church, you've been burned by the church. You, maybe you're afraid of literally being burned by one of these pyromaniac pastors of yours, but, but truly, I mean, if you, maybe you've been hurt by the church in some way that you just, you've given up faith, you've given up on God entirely. And and those questions are, are legitimate, and I'm sorry if that's been your experience, but let me say this, do not feel that you have to check those questions at the door when you come in here. The questions of, can I trust God? Can I know that His promises are sure? Can I believe in the claims of what He has said? These questions are good and right for us to ask, because when we ask them, we find that we're in good company, because this is precisely the question that Abram asked of God in our text. How do I know that I can trust you? And so this morning, as we turn to Genesis 15, this is the question I want us to look at, because it's a question that Abram asked very honestly and in a raw way from his heart, wanting to know, how do I know, God, that I can trust you? Now we've been in the book of Genesis uh, since the beginning of March, and, and, and really in these early chapters we've been looking at these foundational narratives around God, around creation, around humanity, and around sin. And we came to Genesis 12 last week, which really serves as the hinge in the the whole book of Genesis, where we go from these kind of early foundational stories um, into the history of God's people through the nation of Israel, as told through the, the, the stories of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we go from looking at the stories in the beginning to now the beginning of the story of how God plans to bring a blessing to all the earth. And in Genesis 12, last week, we saw how God's plan begins with the call of Abram, and how God has called Abram to be a part of this plan that is small, it is slow, and it is scary, but it is also a plan that has this outward focus and that involves you and I. It's a plan that God calls Abram to himself, and through him, he is calling us to himself so that he might bless us in order that we might be a blessing to all the earth. But as we come to Genesis 15, obviously there's a few chapters in between 12 and 15, if you've done the math, and so I want to kind of bring us up to speed as to where we are in the context of our story when Abram asks God this very honest question. And so, at the end of Genesis chapter 14, or basically what's been going on is that Abram, with his family, has been traveling to Egypt. And, and a part of the, the whole entourage is his nephew, Lot. And at some point, uh, Lot and Abram decide to part ways. There was some division among their, their herdsmen. And so, they decide to part ways. Lot goes to Sodom and, in so doing, finds himself captured in the middle of a war between these uh, battling kings. And so, Abram, while he is a away from this, kind of catches wind of it, and he kind of goes all Liam Neeson uh, on these kings of like, I will come and find you. And he goes after Lot to try to bring him back. And in so doing, Abram takes 300 of his mightiest men, goes after these kings, defeats them in battle, and brings Lot back home safe and sound. Now, Abram also he, as he's brought back, he brings back the possessions that were taken from the king of Sodom. And he brings them back to the king of Sodom. And out of gratitude, the king of Sodom says, I want to give these back to you, Abram. Receive them as a reward. But in Genesis 14, we actually see Abram turning down this generous offer. In Genesis 14, through 23, we read these words where Abram says, I have, li- I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So just to kind of put yourself in the situation of Abram, where he's at, he, he is in a place where he has angered these, the equivalent of like five mob bosses who kind of live across the street. I mean, th- these kings that Abram went and beat up, he didn't like utterly annihilate. They're still alive and they're still in the area and they know where he lives. And so Abram no doubt is fearing reprisal from these kings. They're going to come back and seek vengeance upon him. And then on top of that, because of his faithfulness to God, Abram has turned down these possessions that would have helped Abram out a great deal since he left everything that he owned uh, to follow God into the desert. And so in this situation, Abram is deeply hopeless in a sense. His well-being and his safety and his security are in jeopardy, and his future is very uncertain. And it's in this moment that God precisely speaks to Abram Genesis 15 opens up with this word. After these things, the word of the Lord came. So right after these things, God speaks to Abram. And he says a word to him that is to comfort him. He says, I will protect you. And he uses these two words, the word shield and reward, to speak directly to these elements of insecurity that Abram is feeling. Abram, don't worry about these kings who will come after you. I will be your shield and protect you. Abram, don't worry about giving up these possessions because of your faithfulness to me. You will be blessed through a great reward. But Abram is still not convinced, which is why we see his response in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 15. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? for I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now these are actually the first words recorded in all of scripture of Abram speaking directly to God. We've seen God speaking to Abram, but this is the first recorded instance of Abram speaking to God, and what is it? It's basically a complaint that is wrapped up in fear, deep fried in doubt. Like that—that's that, kind of what Abram is. I mean, like he's, in, hes not, and he begins by saying, "Oh Lord," he's—he's he's not in a place of completely giving up, but he is almost there. Like, find out what giving up is, and just add one point to that, and that's where Abram is. Now, what's really interesting in this interaction is that I don't know if you notice, but—but if you notice the repetition of the phrase Abram said. This is really unique in Hebrew dialogue because typically the way dialogue would flow in in the Hebrew uh, interaction and writing is that you would have one person speak, and Abram said, and then it's followed up by, and then God said. But if you notice, it says Abram said back to back before God even speaks, which kind of seems redundant. It's like, do we really need that and Abram said again there in the middle of the passage there? This is actually intentionally placed to communicate God's intentional silence. It's basically like like, like Abram is coming to God. He's like, here's what's going on. Like, How do I know? I'm I'm fearful, Uh, my insecurity is growing. God, how can I know these things? I'm still childless. And it's as if Abram is waiting for God to respond and God just kind of sits there and says, go on. Are are you done? Do you, like, let it out, have a good cry? And that's kind of what God is doing. And so when it says, Abram said, and then Abram said again, that is communicating God's intentional silence as if God is saying, are you finished? Are you done? I'm listening, but keep going on with your rants. It's in God's intentional silence where we actually find the first answer to this very honest question of how do you know you can trust God? Which again is a question I think all of us are asking, whether you've been faithfully following Jesus for years or whether this is your first time in church in a long time or for the first time, I think many of us ask this question, how do you know you can trust God? And in this first exchange, we see the first answer and is that God listens to us. He listens to us. Abram is in a place of serious hopelessness. Like I said, his safety is compromised, his well-being is in jeopardy, and his future is uncertain. And perhaps you find yourself in a similar situation resonating and identifying with Abram this morning. Perhaps you're at a place where you are ready to just give up on God, on faith, on church, on everything. You feel so beat down, you feel so overwhelmed, you feel that there's nowhere else to turn, And you feel that all hope is lost. And and if that's you, first of all, I'm glad you're here. And I I hope we as a church can be a, a community where you can share that and be open and honest with what you're feeling. And I hope that we can be that for one another. But what I also want you to know, and what I think God is declaring to us through this exchange with Abram, it's that in these moments of hopelessness, these are the precise moments when God wants us to come to him all the more that he wants us to cry out to him, to, to bring our tears and our fears to him, so to speak, to bring and to declare our doubts and our shouts, that God is not so concerned about your questions, your worries, your doubts and skepticism. He longs to hear that, and I am convinced that one of the biggest barriers to faith for many people is this kind of false belief that that all of our communication with God must only be very proper and pious, that it must be holy and happy, that it must be joyful and jubilant and nothing else. And and if we can't speak in that way to God, then we either have to make it up with this kind of facade of spirituality and a bunch of religious uh, language. We either have to make it up or we either have to give it up. And I believe that that is so far from the truth of God's heart. That God is not expecting us to just come to him with words of happiness and fake smiles. If that describes you, what I want you to hear is that God invites your raw emotions, your honest questions, and your, your, uh, your honest words and your hard questions. He invites those in prayer So much so that, I don't know if you know this, but so much so that that he chose an entire book of the Bible inspired by him as divine revelation to us in the book of Psalms, which is filled with God's people crying out to him and declaring their honest, raw responses of where are you, God? What is going on here? How could you allow this to happen? There's something about God giving space in his word for his people to speak out to him honestly that says God invites that. Far from God being offended or worried or concerned about us and our honesty and rawness coming before him, God invites that. I love how C.S. Lewis, he describes the posture of prayer that we should have in this way. He says, we must lay before him, referring to God, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. I think this is such a great description because we tend to think that we come to God in prayer and we have to kind of make up all this stuff and use all this flowery religious language when really what we see, especially in the Psalms, is God's people coming to him from places of desperation and anger and frustration and doubt, from places of hopelessness. And these prayers are heard by God. So instead of of letting your anger and your frustration and your complaints about God, instead of letting them be barriers to your faith and to your prayers, let them animate your faith and your prayers. Come to God. So, so don't think that God can't handle these things. Instead of letting your doubts create silence in your prayer life, let your doubts animate your prayer life. Because indeed, God invites that. And so how do we know we can trust God? The first thing we see is that he patiently listens to us. But after God lets Abram kind of have his little cry session and kind of declare his honest heart to God, God does speak a word of promise. And we see that in verses four and five. And God says, this man, referring to Eleazar of Damascus, which is just this this member of of, uh, Abram's household, he said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So the promise that God made to Abram back in Genesis 12, the promise that from Abram and Sarai would come a mighty nation, a nation that would be a blessing to all nations, that promise is being made more and more clear to Abram as God takes him outside and, and the, the promise is not just you will have a mighty nation, but, but God is clear, you will indeed bear a son. And, and the way in which God tries to get a hold of Abram's heart is through his imagination. In Genesis 12, he just says, you're gonna, you're, a mighty nation will come from you. But in Genesis 15, God takes Abram outside and says, look up, and he shows them this beautiful sight, the sight of the stars. And you, you, gotta, you gotta know this, what Abram saw that night was, was a number of stars that we have never seen. I mean, as we, as we think about what we, we see as stars, I mean, there, there are no streetlights, no p- pollution at this point. What Abram sees is a beautiful starry night that we have never seen. And in this moment, his, his imagination is stirred, and in this moment, he sees God speaking him directly, speaking to his heart, and in this moment, Abram responds with a renewed faith. As we see recorded for us in verse six, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now notice, nothing has changed in Abram's circumstances, right? God God has not taken away the problems. He's not saying, like, don't worry about those kings. Like, I wiped him out. Hey, don't worry about your possessions. Like, he, he hasn't changed anything about his circumstances. But what he has changed is Abram's perspective, Abram's faith in God did not come about because God removed all the obstacles and problems and said, don't worry, Abram, your life is going to be peachy and wonderful, and you'll never get a scab or a, or a scrape knee or anything. In fact, God is actually very clear in verse 13. He says, hey, there are actually going to be many problems that will come to you and to your descendants. God's pretty clear about that. So, So far from saying, hey, I'm going to take away all your problems, he's saying, no, more problems will come. And so again, what did change was that Abram began to see God and his promises as sure and trustworthy. Nothing changed in Abram's circumstances, but everything changed in terms of his perspective. And it all came from the way in which God declared his promises in such a sure and trustworthy way. Look with me at verse uh, 18, chapter 15, verse 18. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. Notice that God is speaking about a future reality in a present tense. He's saying, I give you this land. I give you and your descendants this land. Something that had not yet happened. In fact, something that Abram himself would never see fully. But God is speaking about this future promise in a present tense as if to say it is as sure and as certain as this very present moment, which gives us then the second answer to this question, how do we know that we can trust God? Yes, God listens to us. But in this second dialogue that we see with Abram, we also see that God goes ahead of us that one of the reasons we can know we can trust God is that God goes ahead of us. Abram has already trusted God, so his faith is being strengthened as he sees the stars in the sky and has his imagination widened uh, in regards to the promise God makes. And yet he still asks this very real, raw, honest, and human question in verse 8, where he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it's referring to the land. How am I to know? Now, this question is not coming from a place of cynicism, but rather from a place of faithfulness. You know, cynicism, I came across this recently, uh, the, the best definition I've ever heard of a cynic. A cynic is one who has given up, but has not yet shut up. Isn't that great? Oh, that's wonderful. Stitch that on a pillow. Uh, but, but Abram is not saying asking this question from a place of cynicism. He's asking it from a place of faithfulness, because he's saying, "God, I, I want to trust you, but, but how am I to know?" It, it's the difference between saying, "Where is God?" And the, the, it's the difference between saying that and saying, "Where are you, God?" Abram has not given up on God, where he's just saying, "Where is God in this, as if God is this absent, distant deity. But he's honestly asking God, where are you in this? There's a world of difference between those two cries. And what this means with Abram, the father of the Judeo-Christian faith, by him asking this question, how can I know, what that tells me is that there's a way to trust God and yet still have questions and doubts. Because notice, God doesn't rebuke Abram for that question. Uh, God does not, he he calls him forward to follow him. He doesn't rebuke him in this question, but, and, and neither does Abram expect, neither does God expect Abram to just follow him blindly, nor does he expect Abram to follow him alone. But when God calls Abram to follow him, to trust in him, he is asking Abram to walk in God's wake and to follow after him. And what this means is that God goes ahead of Abram. And what that means for us, when we look at this promise to Abram, is that God never sends us anywhere that he has not gone himself. God never sends us anywhere where he has not gone himself. Or or to say it another way, God never tells us to go without him going first. God never tells us to go anywhere or do anything without him doing it or going first. Next Saturday, my, uh, I signed up my, my two oldest daughters for an obstacle race uh, here in Olathe, actually. And this is something that they're, they were a little bit nervous about. It's a little bit out of their comfort zone. Uh, but the reason I was able to compel them to do that is because uh, this is something I love to do. I love obstacle races. The reason the girls were able and willing to say, I'm willing to do this, is because I went first. I love doing obstacle races. This is, uh, this is me. Uh, I ran the warrior dash recently. Fire, again, I just realized that. There's fire in this picture. Uh, I'm sensing a theme. Uh, but I, lo- I love obstacle races. They're a joy. And so when I share with the girls the pictures and the videos of the races I've done, I'm telling them, hey, this is fun. You can enjoy it. It will not be totally terrifying. And they were willing to say yes because I went first. I went ahead of them. And so we can know that we can trust God because he goes ahead of us. And that every step forward we take in faith and obedience is a step on a trail that God has blazed for us already. But even still, some of us are thinking, okay, I I, I hear that, God listens to us, God goes ahead of us, but who cares? This still doesn't convince me that God is is someone worthy of my trust, worthy of faith, worthy of devotion. And that's fair. I think that's totally fair. In fact, I would agree with you If our story just ended with those two points. But it doesn't. What we see is actually the greatest basis upon which we can trust God is found in this very weird and morbid episode that we see in verses 9 and 10. Look with me. God says, bring me a heifer. So after the question, how can I know God? God says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, like, I mean, so, so like Abram says, how can I know? And God says, here's how you can know. Let's turn a petting zoo into a butcher shop. Like, this just doesn't make sense. It's, I'll just be honest, it's really weird, and it gets weirder. But in this episode, in this dialogue, we actually find this beautiful and profound way that God establishes the reason for why we can trust him. Because this act of cutting animals asunder, you know, cutting them in half and placing them apart from one another, this was actually a common ritual in the ancient Near East when people engaged into a contract. And so what would happen is that when two parties engaged in this contract, they would would cut an animal in half or multiple animals. And together, they would walk between these torn pieces of flesh as a way to say to one another, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I break my promise to you. It's the ancient Near Eastern version of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Like, like That's what it is essentially. It's a way of visually displaying my promise to you that if I don't fulfill my end of the bargain, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. But what's really interesting is that only one person walks between the pieces. I don't know if you noticed this in the story, but look with me at verses 17 and 18. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land. You see, these symbols of fire and smoke, as strange as they may be, they are constant and consistent images and symbols of the holy presence of God. We see it in Exodus as God leads his people through the wilderness by a a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. We see it at Mount Sinai when God gives the revelation of the Ten Commandments to Moses. Fire and smoke descend upon the mountain of Sinai. And in this moment, we see these same symbols of God's holy presence walking in between the torn flesh. And if you notice, Abram doesn't follow. Abram doesn't walk with the fire and the smoke, or in other words, with God. What this means is that in this covenant that God makes with Abram, it is God and God alone who passes between the pieces of torn flesh. It is God and God alone who is the one making the promise, and it is God and God alone who is the one who will be torn apart if either party breaks the promise. That's what God is declaring in this this beautiful and strange picture. And so how do you know you can trust God? Yes, God listens to our honest cries. Yes, God goes ahead of us and leads us through life. But most of all, we know we can trust God because he promises for us. He promises for us. The creator of the stars, the author of life, the source of all truth, the greatest being in existence is saying that he will promise for his people and he will suffer the consequences if and when they violate the covenant. We so often think that the the God of the Old Testament, as if it's a different God from the New Testament, it's not, but we tend to think that God of the Old Testament is this vicious and capricious deity who just can't wait to just pour out his wrath upon anything that moves and breathes. And yes, while God is a God of justice and wrath, absolutely, he is simultaneously a God of mercy and promise. He is the God who says, I promise to to bring my judgment upon the wicked and the unjust. But he is also the God who says, I promise to become the recipient of that judgment for my people who are wicked and unjust. And so what this very weird and wonderful story is, is beautifully and boldly declaring to us is this, is that God will, re- will die before he breaks a promise. God will die before he breaks a promise. What God is declaring to Abram in this promise is actually the promise he is declaring to you and to me this very day. Because the promise to Abram that, that, that his descendants would, would possess the promised land is a promise that Abram never sees, never fully experiences, never gets to witness and he never enters the land himself. And that's because this covenant that God is cutting with Abram, that's what that word means. It says when when God made a covenant with Abram, it means that he cut a covenant with him. This covenant that God is cutting with Abram is pointing to the one that Isaiah prophesied of, the one who would be cut off from the land of the living. What this promise is telling us is that the promise to Abram, the promise that a son would come forth out of a lifeless and barren womb is actually pointing to the promise that a son would come out of a empty tomb. That is what this promise is pointing to. That just as, as God walked between the torn pieces of flesh, Jesus, the son of God, walked to the cross alone so that his flesh would be torn apart for us. Just as God did not ask Abram to walk with him between the torn pieces, Jesus is not calling us to climb up onto the cross to be crucified with him. He does that for us completely by himself once and for all. Because God will die before he breaks a promise. That's what this story is telling us. Abram's question to God of how am I to know is an honest question that many of us are asking, is how can we trust God? But the truth of this story is answering that very real and honest question for us in a very definitive, in a very bold way. That yes, God listens to us and invites our cries and our prayers. Yes, God goes ahead of us and leads us through life, but God also promises for us. And he holds up both ends of the promise by enduring the penalty that we deserved, and the power of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and his victory over death for us shows us that God will indeed die before he breaks a promise. And this led Abram to believe the Lord. The question is, do you? Let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that your spirit would open our eyes to see you for who you are. Lord, that you are the God who listens to us, that you are the God who goes ahead of us, and you are, praise be to Jesus, the God who promises for us. And so, Lord, may we see you as the God who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our praise, worthy of our faithfulness, obedience, and devotion, and affection. Lord, I ask that you would show yourself to us that we might know you, know ourselves fully, and walk in light of you, the God who has promised on our behalf. Lord, would you open our hearts that we might respond to you in praise and worship and live before you in all of life. Lord, show us that you are indeed a God who we can trust. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.